This is the Heartland Daily Podcast. Hello and welcome to the Heartland Institute's Daily Podcast. I'm Sterling Burnett, Director of the Arthur B. Robinson Center on Climate and Environmental Policy and Managing Editor of Environment and Climate News. At the Heartland Institute's recent 15th International Conference on Climate Change, I was honored to be on a panel with our guest today, Vijay Jayaraj. Vijay is a research associate with the CO2 Coalition, uh, although I first came to know him when he served as a research associate for developing countries for the Cornwall Alliance for the Stewardship of Creation. Vijay is among the foremost spokesmen in the fight against green colonialism and a critique of the West's exploitation of and suppression of developing countries in the vain quest to control the climate. At ICCC 15, Vijay and I composed two-thirds of a panel titled Green Energy Exploitation, with his talk focusing on climate imperialism, which is what he's here to discuss today. Vijay, thanks for being with us. Yeah, it's my pleasure to be on the show. So Vijay, before we jump into the meat of the interview, for our listeners who may not be familiar with you, please tell us a little bit about yourself, your background, how you came to work on the intersection of environmental and climate issues and issues of poverty and development, and what the CO2 Coalition is, stands for, and does. Well, yeah. Uh, I mean, I was born and raised in India, uh, a country that was witness to widespread poverty in the 80s and 90s. So it was only during the past three decades that the country uh, developed a lot. So naturally, growing up, I was witness to poverty, and also I was uh, innately concerned about the need for conservation and to take care of our environment. And this is the reason why I did my uh, master's in environmental sciences uh, from the University of East Anglia in UK. And once I graduated, I worked with a couple of uh, energy consultants and uh, others, other research institutes. Uh, so having spent my time there, uh, I realized that, uh, you know, there's a need to address uh, the issue of climate change as well. And if if your listeners can recognize, uh, there was Algo's movie that came up in 2007 uh, that that uh, promoted uh, the climate agenda. So naturally, I was concerned about how all of this is going to impact the people in the third world. And I realized that uh, the climate policies uh, are in fact harmful, uh, not beneficial to the environment. And it you know, uh, put, puts at risk billions of people and their future uh, due to the energy policies that the that the climate front was proposing, and uh, and that's that's why I became skeptical, and I I should say I became a climate realist uh, by the mid 2010s, and eventually I went on to work with uh, a couple of good uh, people who are uh, fighting the fight against uh, climate alarmism. And I, uh, I'm currently working with the CO2 Coalition, uh, which is a non-profit located in Virginia. And uh, they uh, are a group of scientists, emeritus scientists, and uh, other experts who are working on uh, var- various policies and reports uh, that help lawmakers make policies that are balanced 
and which are people centric and they also are doing a educational initiative to help uh, the children around the world to understand climate science and help them uh, you know come out of the brainwashing that's happening at our public schools so yeah that's a brief note about me ovijay what is uh, if you define it for our listeners green colonialism or green imperialism and what are some of the examples of it and why is it illegitimate uh yeah so green imperialism and colonialism might sound like new uh, uh you know topics for people but in reality uh they are just a comeback of the earlier forms of colonialism that existed in our world as we as as a collective society across the world have gone beyond the stage of colonialism and we promote democracy and uh, that's how it has been until the last two decades when uh, the powers in brazils and and other other places uh, seem to have uh, more control over domestic energy policies and economic policies in the third world and they do this uh, in the name of climate so in that year 2016 we had the formulation of the paris climate accord and now we have the net zero agreement in which a lot of these developing countries are forced uh, to participate in uh, in policies and act- economic sanctions that uh, you know uh, pose a serious threat to the development of uh, people in who are in under poverty so so in a way uh, when unelected people in an organization like united nations try to enforce restrictive energy policies upon the people in the third world uh, it it qualifies as a form of colonialism where uh, the people do not have autonomy or free will to access and use fossil fuels like they would like to and uh, so so that uh, is being termed as a modern form of climate colonialism so it's, uh, it's sort of uh westerners imposing their concerns making their concerns primary for uh people in developing countries yeah and we sh- we should note that these are not uh it's 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 quite difficult to uh generalize this uh, because it's not the people uh, but uh, a section of leaders in the west uh who are imposing these policies upon the third world uh because from from the um, from looking at the way the western world has contributed to the development of people in africa and asia uh you can you can understand that the people in the west have been helping the people in the underdeveloped parts of our world but it's the leaders uh, in the west who are trying to impose these policies and you know uh promote their agenda uh which uh, you know they believe saves our climate uh, from a crisis that's non-existent you know i sometimes wonder when i look at this issue whether they really do think they're controlling the climate or whether what they're doing is trying to control people for whatever their own purposes that they have sort of a their elites and they have a vision of the way the world would should be and they're willing to impose it through various economic and political means but that's just me maybe yeah i mean uh, it's hard to uh, assume yeah. what the what is the reason behind their actions but we we do know that their actions will ultimately lead to uh, excess control uh, from a foreign country 
and and uh, curtail development and it's already uh, evident in many of the countries uh, how paris agreement has disrupted and distracted those economies from going forward uh, with a full fledged energy sector of, you know with a with fossil fuels as as its foundation well, it, which leads me to my next question. So what has been the impact of the West's obsession with fighting climate change so far on the development of the poorest countries and the lives and livelihoods of the people there? How how are they actually having an impact? So I can I can give you a couple of examples uh, because when when we analyze what's happening domestically in in different countries uh we under we it gives us a clearer picture of how these international policies are impacting uh take for example uh, the democratic republic of congo the drc congo and more than 90% of the people there still use charcoal as a fuel for cooking uh which is not the case anywhere in the world and for them to transition to gas is a is a tough problem now because uh, you have the climate czar uh, john kerry uh, telling congo not to uh, extract oil and gas and uh, you know that means if at all they transition to gas they'd be relying on very expensive imports and uh, and also keep in mind uh, uh, very less uh, funding from european uh, countries for transitioning to gas as now it turns out that uh, the western countries are against gas dows so it's they are in a tough spot uh, they can't extract they are told not to extract their own oil and gas and they are asked uh, they are told that gas is bad so likewise if you look at vietnam a, a country in southeast asia that has had phenomenal economic growth rate in the past two decades is now at the risk of distracting itself with uh, esg policies uh, in its banks which are being promoted by uh, us aid the primary uh, aid agency in the us that that has been helping all the poor countries and besides they are also part of uh, the net zero campaign and uh, they are going they are thinking about forgoing coal which has been the primary reason uh, in driving their energy sector and their manufacturing industry which are big part of their gdp so likewise if you look at other other big countries like india and china coal definite coal and oil have definitely been the major energy energy sources uh, driving their economies for the past two decades showing incredible improvement in uh, poverty uh, standards and and you you can literally see the uh, coherence uh, and and uh, the way that the improvement in energy sector has helped Imp- the improvement in people's lives in these countries yeah. so these are some of the examples uh, in which uh, not only the distraction from net zero and paris agreement but also the the weak leadership in some of these countries which which tend to align with the leadership in the west which wants them to reduce intake of fossil fuels yeah. so it's a very complex situation but looking at uh, you know examples like these help us understand more about what's going on yeah i i often think of climate uh, policy international climate policy as a transfer of wealth from the poor in developed countries to the uh, leadership the the rich in developing countries that that political politicians get payoffs uh uh or they get control over the funds and um it, some of it may trickle down to the people 
it's 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 exploitation in two ways though you've talked about how they suppress the development of fossil fuels but at the same time they are going to places like the Democratic Republic of Congo or China and saying we want your uh, minerals for our green energy development and that is leading to some pretty horrific uh, consequences with child labor with slave labor and uh, somehow there's a disconnect in the West between uh, the idea that you know we'd never let these things happen in in the U.S. anymore. At one time we had child labor; it's against the law now. Uh, you're not going to see this in Germany, but they sort of turn, avert their eyes to what's going on in these countries in their push for green energy. Yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, if you look at their logic, what they're saying is that. Uh, it's it's more important to save climate, um, Earth from climate change than than uh, you know be concerned about little children mining uh, for minerals in Congo and and even like the poor people in China doing the mining and the factories where they work in uh, you know very des- despicable conditions. Mm-hmm. So so and and it's it's astonishing that a country like U.S. Uh, the leaders uh, of a certain party in U.S. are uh, willing to forgo uh, oil and gas and coal uh, to be extracted and used in in one of the cleanest uh, uh, ways possible. The the country with the highest uh, standard for safety regulations, uh, uh, but rather they would forgo that. Uh, but instead, they will seek uh, minerals from Congo, which are. Uh, which involve child labor and uh, poor uh, labor conditions and uh, buy uh, wind and solar tech from China where uh, the the situation in industries is, you know, again, uh, very uh, unpredictable. So uh, why would they do that? And uh, that that's a question for which I don't have an answer because uh, you have the best way to get reliable energy access here within the country. But instead, uh, they are seeking an energy that are being mined and and uh, technology that are being produced in a in a very uh, unsafe manner. So all in the name of climate again. And this, I think, should lead people to uh, think about about the actual justification for this, which is uh, the fact that the climate is getting worse, and we need to do this in order to reduce our emissions. Well, so why do you think, uh, you know, we're in the 21st century, why do you think fossil fuels are still vital to economic development and are the benefits worth the climate risk? Well, uh, like if you look at the Western economy, uh, right from the time of Industrial Revolution, it's proven that fossil fuels give us reliable and cheap source of energy and they are naturally available on the in the earth so so that this is a proven method to achieve economic success and uh, if if people in the US could talk to their grandparents or have heard about uh, the ways the economy has uh, transitioned and developed during the past uh, century and a half uh, they'll know that fossil fuels have have been the fundamental uh, cornerstone of this economy and and the same is the case with uk and uh, and a few big uh, uh, european superpowers so the 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 strategy 
to help people in the third world develop is uh, very much similar uh, because all these uh, economies in in Africa and Asia and South America have to go through the same phase of uh, industrialization where uh, they become a society that's reliant on uh, higher forms of technology and uh, more efficient way of living and and manufacturing and hence to ask them to not follow the same path uh, uh, is uh, you know insane and and this is why fossil fuels are still important to all these economies and and perhaps the reason why india and china are unapologetic in their use of fossil fuels and in in a sense uh, coming back to the second half of your question which is about climate risk uh, we know that uh, uh, the higher the standard of living uh, people have uh, the better they are able to adapt to uh, changes in extreme weather and uh, this has been also uh, you know discussed a lot in the public forum uh, by people like M- michael schellenberger and alex epstein and be- that's because it's uh, proven like uh, the higher your gdp the better access you have to technology and safety uh, standards which enable you to sustain better in terms of extreme climate climatic conditions and uh, you know and uh, we know our agricultural sector is uh, Uh, extremely uh, efficient now with higher end technologies and the more people uh, in the developing parts of the world uh, have access to these technologies the better they would be uh, in in case of a drought or a flood and uh, they can they can be more resilient to climate and so uh, it it makes only uh, it makes better sense for giving these people access to fossil fuels and letting their economies develop rapidly so they attain a level of uh, development where they are able to adapt to uh, seasonal changes in extreme weather uh, which is like nobody can predict so the, the changes in climate uh, can even 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 if like, if we assume that the climate is going to change as per what ipcc claims uh, which is a 3 degree celsius increase according to many models by the year 2100 uh the impact that it would have on our gdp is like less than 5% uh when we are talking about the global gdp so not only is the risk minimal but even if there is a risk it's important that people are in a state of uh you know uh that they're more highly developed and yeah that um that number seems high to me the 5% but i think it's important to note it's not that it would be a 5% decline it what they're talking about is a 5% reduction in the rate of growth over time so people will still be wealthier and the question is how long do developing you know people in developing countries or the poor in rich countries have to stay poor um or poorer than they would otherwise have to be um yeah yeah i mean uh, that's the question so even even when we talk about climate colonialism it's not just in in the in the third world countries it's it's even in countries like us and europe where you know a certain section of leaders decide uh, what kind of economic growth that individuals should have and that's not right and that's impose imposition of uh, you know uh dictatorship like laws and rules upon people and uh, their right to have access to uh you know 
energy sources that have been uh, meticulously developed technologies to use them have been uh, developed with great pain and here we are in a stage where we are able to utilize them in the most efficient and safe way possible and uh, they put the brakes on on the sector the energy sector which is not right yeah so i want to go to a little bit different topic uh, related but different um <coughs> Excuse me. You recently participated uh, and were at ICC, the International Climate, the 15th International Climate Conference hosted by the Heartland Institute and co-hosted by CFAC. Um, what, you know, what were your impressions of it? What, uh, what, what were the highlights for you? What did you take away? Um, um, how... Uh, how did it arm you to fight the battle uh, that you're battle that you're fighting uh, better? Yeah, I, uh, the Heartland Conference in Florida in 2023 this year uh, was uh, was a fantastic event where uh, you had some of the leading scientists in in their fields share with us on some of the facts that uh, you know expose the current climate movement. Uh, which which uh, which does not uh, you know which does not function in a very scientific way and uh, the pushback against this was very evident in the conference and where uh, it where you can learn from uh, experts in various subjects on on why the current climate movement doesn't make sense and that was my key takeaway if you if if I were to put it uh, because uh, there is only so much that I can focus my research time on and it's important that uh, there's a event where uh, there's a collective uh, brainstorming of of the developments and the findings uh, from various experts and not only uh, scientific experts but also lawmakers who are actively involved in uh, stopping uh, the imposition of uh, harsh climate energy policies upon people here in the US and uh, how it can be replicated across the globe so it was an important learning uh, for me and uh, more than anything it was good to pe- uh, meet people uh, who stand for truth and who are fighting against uh, the unscientific climate movement so so that would be my uh, uh, key takeaway and uh, i think i would encourage anyone listening to this uh, message uh, to participate in the upcoming conferences uh, in the years forward going forward so because it's it's critical uh, that people are made aware of of the information on on uh, you know actual facts that challenge the ongoing climate movement and uh, there's uh, and it takes a long time to disseminate this information through op-eds and through podcasts such as this uh, whereas uh, if you look at the conferences it was just over two days and uh, you could sit through so many uh, sessions and uh, you know get a grasp of reality of what's happening mm-hmm. and quite difficult uh, to do uh, by one's own research uh, in a, in a computer so yeah i would encourage people to visit the conference in the upcoming years well, I appreciate you saying that. I know uh, – I, I always find it refreshing to know that, you know, you and I and and, and others, we communicate with each other, uh, email, text, things like that. Uh, but 
it's nice to know that there's a wider group of people out there that we're not alone. We're not the only ones that uh, are, are fighting for truth. That that That's what I always take away when I leave these conferences. So, Vijay, big picture. If you could make just one point, what's the most important single point you'd like our listeners to take away from our discussion of the impact of elites in developed countries' obsession with fighting climate change on average and poor people in developing countries? Yeah, I would encourage people to uh, seek out more information on the current state of poverty and how it is very closely interlinked to energy poverty in the third world. And for uh, billions of people, more than 4 billion people, the current set of climate policies that are being pushed in the West, especially by the administration in D.C. and those in United Nations, is extremely uh, harmful for the people in the third world. And so what I would encourage is for people to uh, take this message to their local uh, representatives uh who are in the Congress and in the House. So I, I encourage them to relay this message to uh, their representatives and say how uh, not only are these policies harmful for the U.S. economy uh, and for uh, energy access in the West, but also for millions and billions uh, who are in active energy poverty in the third world where even hospitals are suffering from lack of electricity and people unable to afford uh, basic uh, medical things like surgery even like in Africa so uh, so that is the key thing I would like people to take from this uh, podcast and and uh, you know relay the message to their network of people and also to the lawmakers and where can they follow your work people can follow my work at co2coalition.org so that's the website of the place where I work at, and uh, they can have access to a wide uh, range of climate facts, facts on uh, the current state of uh, science, so that they can have a better understanding and, you know, from what, how they're brainwashed from the mainstream media, it helps to cleanse our mind with actual facts and truth, yeah. Mm -hmm. Vijay, it's been a pleasure to speak with you. I want to thank you for coming on the show on behalf of myself and our listeners. Thanks. It was a pleasure talking with you. Yeah, thank you. Listeners, thanks for checking in on us today. Please check Heartland's website as we follow the work of Vijay Jayaraj and the other scholars at the CO2 Coalition and the Cornwall Alliance for the Stewardship of Creation. Please also continue to work and follow us as we track the progress and environmental of energy and environmental laws and regulations that affect you. In addition, if you're not already receiving these podcasts daily on your favorite device, go to iTunes and subscribe. And when you have the time, please rate our podcast on iTunes so you can help us expand the reach of free market ideas. Thanks. Take care. Bye. Bye.